Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please take out your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Our text will be Romans 1, 18 through 23. <clears throat> and as you make your way that way, let us come before the Lord, and we will pray for the reading and the preaching of God's Word. Father, we come before you with our hands held out and lifted up. They are lifted up because you're worthy, but also lifted up because we have nothing to bring. And the reason for that is we realize that all of life and even our salvation is all of you. That we have really nothing to give you except to glorify you and enjoy you forever. And the Father, we certainly do that as expressions in the way that we give, and we do that in the way that we do service, but we understand those things don't make you love us. You've already loved us and demonstrated you've loved us through your son's death on the cross. But we do these things in gratitude. And so it is with grateful hearts, Lord, we come here today to worship you. And that with hungry hearts, Lord, we come here to hear from your word, that you would feed us the food of your word, Lord, and not just the, the milk, but the meat as well. And that, Lord, we'd be prepared to hear what it is that you would have us to know, and that you would use your word to continually shape us and change us more and more into the image of your son, and that you would knit us together as a church family, as a representative, as representatives of your kingdom on earth, that you would draw us closer together as a covenant community, Lord. And I pray, Father, that this would be pleasing in your sight and that this would be something, Lord, that you would use in your hand to bring revival to our community and ultimately our nation, as Brother Matt has been praying for. We give you all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1, <clears throat> beginning in verse 18. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the word of the Lord. The late R.C. Sproul once wrote, as the fear 
of God is the beginning of wisdom, so the denial of God is the height of foolishness. There are times I really wish I could write one-liners like that. <laughs> I want to welcome you back to part six of our series on the book of Romans titled The Power of the Gospel, and that's what this book is all about. It is about the gospel. It's about what the gospel is. It's about, what the, it's about the hope that the gospel gives, and it's about how we as Christians are to live in light of the truth of the gospel. And as we have seen, Paul is all in, sold out for the gospel. He says that he's eager to preach the gospel to the Romans there in that church, and he's not ashamed of the gospel. And, as, uh, and, and then he reminds us in Romans 1.18, right, of what the explanation of the gospel is. He begins his explanation in Romans 1.18. And as we've talked about, Paul begins his explanation of the gospel with the bad news of our condition, the bad news of who we are in light of who God is, the bad news that really makes the good news necessary. And as we've learned, Paul's explanation of the bad news um, will last way into chapter 3. It begins in 118, it, it ends in basically uh, 323, because he's going to lay out a complete foundation of all of what mankind is about, the truth that he's covered up in sin, right? So that way he can make it really clear there's only one way to be saved, and that's to be justified through faith. Paul is going to take three, basically three chapters to make it really clear, lay the foundation so that no one can dispute the truth, that there's only one way to be saved, and that is by faith in Christ. And so for the last couple of weeks, we have been exploring the very beginning of this bad news in chapter 1, and specifically verses 18 through 23. And in this section, Paul reveals three truths of the gospel that many people, including some Christians, find offensive. And, and they are, number one, the wrath of God. And then number two is the folly of unbelief, which we'll talk about today. And number three, the fact that mankind was created to worship something and will worship something. These are three truths that the world finds deeply offensive. And in light of that, for the last few messages, we've been looking carefully at the truth of the wrath of God, the truth that God's wrath is real, that His wrath is just and right. His wrath has come on account of our sin and rebellion against Him, and His wrath is being revealed right now against sin and is a foreshadowing of things to come. And this wrath isn't just reserved for simply just strangers that we don't know, but it's also reserved for those that we love and care about who are not in Christ. Now, with that, I realize the last couple of messages have been pretty heavy. I understand that. And when you delve into the difficult texts like this, setting aside your personal feelings and assumptions and allowing the text of Scripture to speak for itself, at times you will encounter deep, heavy, difficult truths. Truths that will challenge you. Truths that will cause you to look really long and hard in the mirror. Truths that will at times make you mourn, truths that will might even break you, truths that are hard to hear. Studying the wrath of God, we encounter such a truth, especially when we think through the implications of that, right? The truth that God's wrath isn't just reserved for strangers out there, right? That people out there aren't the only ones who are in egregious sin against God. God's wrath is also reserved for people that we care about and love, Despite our best efforts to, to help them see the light, they are in rebellion to God, not trusting in Christ. 
And, when, and then we were confronted with the fact that at times our feelings for our loved ones can make us, make it hard for us to tell them about the truth. Our feelings for loved ones and not wanting to create conflict or not wanting to stir up a hornet's nest or just simply not wanting to hurt people's feelings makes it hard for us to tell them the truth about sin and God's wrath against that sin. In fact, this truth itself confronts us in our own love for God. I know it has for me. Do we really love God supreme even over those who are really close to us? And the thing is, what nags at us when we consider these things is there are times and on some and there are some levels at some point I think all of us have experienced whether we want to admit it or not there are moments when we could be accused of being ashamed of the gospel not because we want to be but sometimes it's just hard right because we struggle with the idea that God's wrath rightly is abiding on people that are close to us family and friends we struggle to see them as the sinners that they really are. And I know this truth has made me very reflective in my own life. It causes me to think about my own walk with God. It causes me to sometimes even question myself, who I am in Christ. Because it can be very heavy. Not to mention, we still have a lot to cover in this text as we make our way through Romans, long before we get to the good news, right? In fact, we, we, we don't get to the, the good news until Romans 3.23. That's when the good news begins. And so it can feel like we spend a lot of time talking about the bad news. Like that's all we're ever going to ever talk about. And so it can feel like our conversations can be heavy. But I want you to take heart. And here's the reason why. The important thing that we need to remember is the darkness of the bad news reveals the glory of the light of the good news. Just as the night sky is the perfect backdrop to reveal the light of the stars of creation, the darkness of the bad news helps to put on display God's glory and the good news. Paul Washer actually mentions this and says, have you ever noticed when you go to a jewelry store, if they ever show you a gem, they will always lay out a black mat first and then put the gems on top of it. So do you know why they do that? This is because the black man is a perfect backdrop to show the glory of the diamond. The bad news of the gospel, as much as it's hard for us to process, is the backdrop that makes the gospel, the good news, shine. And so in light of that this morning, as we make our way through this part of Romans, I want to remind you of where all this is going. I want to remind you of the glorious good news that this difficult stuff reveals. I want to give you a counterbalance, so to speak, to hold on to as we navigate some of these difficult passages in Paul's letter. A truth that should remind you of your hope and the hope of the world, and a truth that should give you hope for your loved ones, that they would turn and believe. In fact, it's a truth that even the wrath of God itself points to. And it's Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Where Paul writes, but God. By the way, whenever you see that phrase in Paul's letters, that's when the good news is about to be told. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I'm not going to preach on this text today because I could. 
But I'm going to submit it to you in hopes that it will strengthen you as we get through some of these difficult texts. Because this is the hope of all who know Christ. The truth that we did not do anything. We did not do anything. We didn't do anything to make God love us. We didn't, make him, we didn't cause Him to look on us with pity to give us a chance. God loved us even while we were in the midst of our rebellion against Him. God loved us even when we were at the worst place in our sin. While we were spitting at God, cursing Him, running from Him, hating Him, while we were rejecting Him, while we were reveling in our sin, suppressing this truth and unrighteousness, God shows, God demonstrates, God reveals His love for us in that while we were doing everything we could do to bring the wrath of God down on our own lives, Christ died for us. As I drove to Fresno in 2003, a God-hating, supposed atheist, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, trying to justify my decision to kill my unborn son. God's love was revealed to me, and I learned in the depth of my sin that Christ died for me. So yes, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven and we must preach that and affirm that and not be ashamed of that. But his love was revealed in Christ long before we could ever do anything for him. And so the counterbalance of God's wrath is his overwhelming, unmerited love. God has given us all a way to escape his wrath. He's given us a way to be spared. He's given us a way to be saved. And that's, this is the message of hope that we bring to our loved ones. This is what we tell them. Yes, God does love you, and he's proven it. Now repent and believe the gospel and be saved. And as we work our way through the bad news of the gospel, let us remember that it all points to the good news, that God loved us enough to send his son to pay the penalty of our sins and give us true eternal life. And let me just share one more little scripture to hold on to as well. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. You were saved by grace through faith in Christ and His gospel, not by your works and not by perfect theology. Praise the Lord for that. And not by your willingness to share the gospel with every person you meet. And not by you being able to fully grasp God's wrath and His grace at the same time. And you're not saved by your perfect church attendance. You're not saved by your ability to never, ever, ever sin again. You're not saved by you never, ever doubting again. You're not even saved by your ability to never doubt your own salvation. You were saved in spite of the fact that you were a sinner in rebellion to God. You were saved in spite of the fact that at times you're going to wrestle with difficult truths. You were saved in spite of the fact that at times you're going to doubt. You were saved by God's grace that He shows through Christ, through faith in the gospel, and that is it. And so my admonition to you is if you ever in doubt, remind yourself of this truth. You were saved by grace through faith. It's not something you did. It's a gift from God. And that's the gospel 
I would encourage you to preach to yourself every single day. Now with that counterbalance in place, let's pick up where we left off and look at verse 18 one more time. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Not only does Paul make it clear that the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against sin of men, mankind is, as we will see, without an excuse because mankind knows the truth. And we, we, we touched on this last week. We spent some time talking about it, right? And, and we, we reminded ourselves, this is why we should never, ever be ashamed of the gospel because all of mankind instinctively knows the truth. They do. Everybody knows that God exists. Everybody knows what sin is. They know it. Now, this is the truth that the whole world hates, though. This is the truth that the whole world wants to hide. That's why Paul says they take this truth and they suppress it in their unrighteousness. Mankind knows the truth, but actively suppresses, holds down this truth. And once again, right, this suppression of truth is not simply taking and burying the truth and forgetting about it. It's not like somebody taking something out into the middle of the desert and finding an old mine shaft and dropping it down into a 300-foot hole and knowing no one's ever going to find it again and forgetting about it. What Paul's talking about is an active suppression of the truth. The metaphor we used last time was a basketball, taking a basketball and trying to push it underwater. If you want a basketball to remain under the water, below the surface, you must actively apply force and hold it there. Otherwise, when you let it go, it just pops right back up to the surface. And it's the exact same thing with the truth. People must actively suppress the truth because if they don't, the truth comes right back to the surface and hits them in the face. The truth about who God is, the truth about sin, the truth about God's hatred for sin, and even the truth that, that, that sin's going to be punished. In fact, Paul is going to round out this whole chapter, chapter 1 in verse 32, where he says, Though they know, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they, they know it, that it's going to be punished. They not only do it, but they give approval to, who, to those who practice them as well. They know the truth. And they suppress the truth. And every human being does this. Every human being does this. And what does that mean? Well, it gives us two things to think about. Two things that we can take to the bank. Two things that we can know for sure. Number one, no one, and I mean no one, is innocent. No one. And number two, no one is an atheist. No one. As a former avowed atheist, I can testify to that. No one, is, no one is innocent, no one is an atheist, because everyone instinctively knows the truth. Now, let's just take a quick moment and, and talk about this briefly. Because one thing that offends people about the gospel is the exclusive nature of the gospel. I think we've all heard that before, right? The fact that a person must hear and respond to the gospel to be saved, that Christ is the only way, that's an offensive truth to so many people. And one of the arguments I've heard against the necessity of the gospel for salvation concerns innocent people. And it usually is a question about an innocent man who never gets to hear the gospel. And I think you've heard it before yourself, right? What about the innocent man that's deep in the jungle and never hears the gospel? What about him? 
What about the innocent man in the desert in the middle of the Middle East and never hears the gospel? What about the, the innocent man on the uncharted island that never hears the gospel? What about him? And as R.C. Sproul says, then he would be immediately escorted to heaven when he dies. If an innocent man in the jungle never hears the gospel, he will go straight to heaven when he dies. If such a man ever existed. Right? Because the problem is, as R.C. Sproul reminds us, is there's no such person. That's what the gospel reminds us. That's what, what Romans tells us. There is no innocent man in the jungle or the desert or on an island or anywhere. And there never has been. As Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no innocent man anywhere. Everyone is covered in unrighteousness and ungodliness. Everyone knows the truth. Everyone suppresses the truth. Everyone rebels against God. The only one in history to be innocent is Christ himself. No one is innocent. No one is deserving of life. That right there should just make us stop in our tracks and we'll just remember that the very next breath we have then is really literally a gift from God. Because what God really owes us is to kill us in our sleep for the sins we committed yesterday. So the next breath you take is a gift from a gracious God allowing you to live a little bit longer. No one is deserving of life. No one is pure. No one is ignorant of the truth. As Sam Waldron um, has said, everyone has enough light enough information, information to be damned. Everyone knows enough to make them culpable and responsible to God. So no one is innocent. And then number two, no one's an atheist. There is no such thing as a true atheist. There's no such thing as someone who truly believes that God does not exist. And again, as someone who used to affirm that position, I would say that's true. Even deep down, my anger towards Christians was rooted in the fact that there was something in me that kept rising to the surface. There are no true atheists, despite what people will claim. And there are people that will, will claim differently. And despite the titles people will hold, despite the intellectual posturing or their shrill response to the truth, there's not a such thing as a true non-believer in God. Everybody knows he exists. Even if a person has lied to themselves to the point that they consciously believe a lie. And we know people are capable of deceiving themselves that they will believe consciously a lie that unconsciously know is to be a lie. Deep down in their subconscious is the hidden recess in their hidden recesses of their hearts is the truth about God, a truth that they actively are suppressing and holding down. And I had a friend of mine who grew up in a Christian home um, and he and I were really good friends. We had a lot of conversations. He was just the type of guy that wanted to argue about everything. Well, at some point in the last few years, he said his faith deconstructed, and he now claims to be an atheist. And he calls once in a while, and he, and he wants to talk, but he doesn't want to talk. What he wants to do is get under my skin, because that's just the kind of guy he is. Now, he's my friend, and I love him, but that's what he's doing. He's, just, he's needling at me, you know? And he comes at me at all kinds of different arguments, and it didn't matter what I say to him. It, it, there's never going to be enough information to satisfy his intellect, you know what I mean? And so finally, I just told him, I said, you know what? You know, you're not even an atheist. He goes, what do you mean? I says, 
you can say that you don't believe in God, but you know that he's real. And boy, his, his hackles got up really, really quick. And, and I wasn't trying to get his hackles up, but I was really trying to make a point. You know what I mean? We can both play this game of trying to get underneath, underneath each other's skin, right? I said, deep down in your heart, you know the truth. And he just kind of explodes with anger. And he's like, well, how dare you? How can you possibly say that, that, that you know what I believe more than what I think I believe? I mean, I am adamantly telling you I don't believe in God. How can you possibly say that I am not an atheist? And I said, that's really easy. See, as a Christian, I have a choice. I either can believe you or I can believe what God says. It's as simple as that. And believe me, when it comes to that, God's going to win every time. So God says you're not an atheist, and so you're not an atheist. And then that sent him into a profanity-laden tantrum that is consistent with God-hating intellectuals around the world when they get confronted with truths that they can't deny. Now, by the way, I just want just so you know, like we've had many conversations since then. We're still friends, and he still knows I love him, but he knows not to go too far down that road with me again. So, so rather than defending his point of view, he becomes irate and and you know, instead of trying to actually deal with the issues, all he can do is just try to take that truth and suppress it back down in his, his bitterness and anger. So there's no one who's innocent and no one who's an atheist because everyone suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. But understand, I want you to realize that Paul doesn't just like take a statement like that and leave it hanging there by itself. He actually takes that statement and he supports this statement with the rest of the text. He, Paul is a supreme adjudicator. He is a supreme arguer. He doesn't just make statements and let them hang out there. He actually supports them. He says um, in, in this text, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For, because what can be known about God is plain to them. I'm going to read that again. For, because what can be known about God is plain to them. Now notice where Paul starts his defense of this statement. He doesn't start with a person's conscience. You hear people all the time say, well, you know, you know right, and right from wrong instinctively, which means God must be there, right? And he doesn't start with the intrinsic worth of people as people ought to know what to do right and wrong. Again, pointing to a lawgiver and again, pointing to God. No, he begins where all truth must begin. He starts with God himself. He says people know the truth and suppress the truth because what can be known, what can be understood about God is plain to them. You see, Paul doesn't begin with philosophy and then try to argue his way to God. He doesn't begin with epistemology and ask, how do we know what we know? He doesn't even begin with cultural understandings of morality and ethics to determine what is right and wrong in order to, to, to get people to move towards a lawgiver. He explains, he begins explaining his explanation of the truth and how people know the truth with the author of truth himself, with God himself. And he says that what can be known about God is plain to them. What can be known about God is plain to them. The reason why people suppress the truth is because what can be known about God is plain or clear to them. And believe me, this right here is a sweeping indictment. That means you can't accidentally miss it. It's plain. In fact, the Greek word that, that Paul uses here can be literally translated as obvious. 
What can be known about God is obvious to them. It's in their faces. This is why we can confidently say there's no atheist. This is why we can say that there was no one who's ignorant or innocent. What can be known about God is obvious. It is clear. It is obvious. Now, that's, that itself is another big claim. But Paul supports that claim as well. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because, notice this, because God has shown it to them. Paul removes all the doubt about people knowing. He says it's obvious. The truth is obvious. And the reason why it's obvious is because God himself, God, the, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is the one who's shown it to them. So you realize there can be no excuse after this. There's none. No one can feign ignorance. It doesn't matter where they were born. It doesn't matter what their background is. It doesn't matter what time or era they were born in. Paul says very clearly, God has shown the truth to them. Because all of creation bears witness to that. Paul says what, the reason why what can be known about God is obvious is every human being to every human being is because God himself has revealed it. And Paul explains how he's revealed it. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for, because his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So what can be known about God is obvious because God has shown it to them and the way that God has shown it to them is through creation. This is the truth that I think we just have to just settle in our hearts as we think about telling the truth to our loved ones is that, is that God's attributes are visible in creation. Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. We've heard that one before. Psalm 50, verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Psalm 8, 1, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Creation declares the truth about God. John even says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Creation itself bears indisputable witness to the nature of God, and it always has. Right? This is not an idea that, that, that's new. In fact, this is an idea that, was try that people try to stifle in the 19th and 20th centuries with modern uh, materialism and naturalism. If you remember, modern science kind of at some point had this understanding that, that all of creation could be explained in naturalistic terms, that everything that ever happened can be explained in materialistic terms. But modern science has revealed that, that, that the universe is greater and more complex and even downright more unpredictable than they could possibly imagine. Like the fact that there are things 
that have no materialistic explanation at all. Like the mind. You talk about something that, that quantum physicists really wrestle with is the idea of the mind and the consciousness. They cannot explain it. Not to mention the universe's scale reveals how simply unbelievably God is. The beauty of the universe reveals His creativity. Its complexity reveals His wisdom. And all the things that we need for life reveals His, his goodness and His love for us. But notice Paul says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. God is an immaterial being, meaning he is not part of the material universe. And as such, we would have no way of seeing him. We have no way of measuring him or knowing him on our own. But God did not leave us without a witness to his character or nature. He's revealed himself to us in creation. And in creation, we can see that he is eternal. Because he must be if creation being created is temporal. Now, obviously, he's powerful. And even more, he's divine in nature. Just as a piece of art reveals the artist, the cosmos reveals its creator. And the things that we need to understand this revelation about God is not something new. It's not new. This revelation wasn't discovered at some point in time by Moses. Paul says... These things have been perceived ever since the creation of the world. His attributes have been visible for all to see from the very beginning. The fact that God exists, the fact that God has created all things, the fact that God is good and holy and loving and powerful are all things that mankind has known because these things have been visible from the beginning in creation. And what this means that is, there's no point in history at all that any human being has been, ever been left without a witness. There's never been a human in history who could not understand that God made everything and that He is holy, righteous, and just, and that mankind by nature is in rebellion to God. From the beginning, there has always been enough evidence to try us, convict us, and condemn all of mankind for His rebellion, regardless of how we might protest and claim to be really, really good people. Regardless of how religious we may have been, regardless that we would even deny the truth, who God is is visible in creation, and it has been from the beginning. And so they are without excuse. And then he says in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. And what this confirms is for us, the truth that all of mankind knows God, they just refuse to acknowledge Him as God. Therefore, their condemnation and God's wrath is just. Paul says the wrath is revealed against the sin of men. Men deny this truth by suppressing it in their unrighteousness. But men know the truth because God has shown it to them in creation. And even though that they know God, they do not honor Him as God and give thanks to Him as God. They just simply don't acknowledge Him. They know who God is and what He requires. But they just suppress that truth. Now, I've actually had somebody who read this particular text here and, and come with me to an honest question. and says, how can, can someone know God? Because it says that they, they know Him. How can someone know God and not be saved? Because in their mind, if you knew God, then you were Saved. What, what, here, here's the thing that you need to hear me on. You do need 
to know God to be saved. But we need to distinguish what we mean by knowing God when we say that. You see, mankind, because he is made in God's image, has a built-in desire to know God. Mankind has an innate need to be connected to God. That's why nothing in the world will ever satisfy anyone when they don't have God. We see it all the time, right? Money will not satisfy very long. Fame will not satisfy very long. Tom Brady, perhaps the greatest quarterback of all times, which pains me to say, but I'll say it, it's the truth. He's pursuing more and more Super Bowls. And at one point he even said, he goes, I've had all these Super Bowls, but there's still something missing. I can tell you what's missing. Fame is not going to do it. Relationships will not fill the hole. Accomplishments will not fill the hole. Mankind was built to know God. And creation itself bears witness to who God is. And Scripture tells us our consciences bear witness to what God wants. In fact, we'll see that later on in Romans itself. But that kind of knowing God, that kind of knowing God is not enough to save us. It's not. That kind of knowing God is enough to condemn us and make us responsible, but He can't save us. Why? Well, the reason why is simple. It's who we are. You see, mankind suppresses the truth and unrighteousness because he loves unrighteousness and he hates God. That's the condition that humanity is in, all of humanity. We were born spiritually dead. We have hearts of stone. We have free will to be sure, but we use that free will to satisfy our own flesh. Paul bears witness to that in, in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, everyone else around us, following the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself, the spirit that's now at work in sons of disobedience, among whom we all, all once lived. We all did. And we lived in what? The passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of what are desires? Things that we want, right? The desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And the reason knowing God this way doesn't save us is because knowing God this way doesn't change our hearts. Knowing God created the universe doesn't make us love Him. Do you understand that? Knowing God that created the universe, that doesn't make us love Him. I mean, people all the time will go outside and marvel at creation. They'll stare at the stars or go get up alone in the mountains and they'll get all you know, enamored and they'll be emotional in awe, but that doesn't cause them to decide to come back and live for Him and to desire Him and to love Him. It's only a momentary feeling that it causes them to have. And it doesn't make them make us honor Him and it doesn't make us thank Him. Knowing that God hates sin doesn't make us run from sin. In fact, I think for many of us, it makes us want it even more. right? Because we're rebellious in nature. And believe me, I identify with that right there. You tell me that i got to do something, watch how fast my feet dig in. I don't know why I'm like that. Oh, I know why I'm like that. I'm a sinner. It's just that's, that, that nature I had to put to death. Knowing God is holy doesn't make us less selfish. Knowing God is holy doesn't make us less self-absorbed. In fact, most of the time when we do good, when we do good, seriously, 
when we do good, we desire to do good because doing good makes us feel good to do good. Come on. I mean, there's a lot of people who do a lot of good things, and I'm grateful to God for them all. But believe me, I have yet to meet someone who truly, genuinely does the good that they do without some sort of intrinsic emotional benefit for doing good. We don't do good because it's right. We do it because of selfish reasons. So the truth is, we are who we are, and we commit the sins that we commit, and we live the way we live in spite of what we know about God because that's our sinful nature. It's who we were before Christ. This is who the world is, by the way. In fact, let me just give you a preview of what Paul says as he summarizes the condition of the human in Romans chapter 3. Anytime somebody wants to point to you and say, I'm a good person, or hey, I'm, I'm somebody who, who, who's spiritual and I'm seeking God, just, just share with him Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Paul says, none, none is righteous, no, not one. All the people who know God and suppress the truth, right? God has revealed himself to these people, but none is righteous. And he says in the next one, no one understands and no one seeks for God. And I'm going to tell you right now, that right there, that one hit me square in the nose at one point because I know a lot of people who seem to be very well-meaning and I hear people say all the time, oh, people are just, they're just searching for God. They're just seeking for God. They're just searching for God. Oh, they're not bad people. They're searching for God. No, they're not. The word of God says that they're not. What they're looking for is a God made in their own image to satisfy that, that inkling in their hearts, but they're not looking for the one true God. Otherwise, they wouldn't suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And Paul continues to say, all have turned aside. Together they've all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They all know that God exists. They know His attributes. God has shown it to them in creation, but that knowledge will not change their hearts. In fact, Paul kind of confirms that they will rebel against him all the more knowing this. Look at verse 21. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of, their immortal, of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals, and creeping things. They know who God is, and they know what he, that, he, that He exists, and they know what He expects, but they suppress that truth and rebel all the more. This knowledge doesn't save them. And the reason is because they don't want Him. That's the human condition. They know God and they're willing to exchange Him for the glory of all manner of false gods to worship, as Brother Matt talked about this morning. From Allah to Buddha to the billions of the gods of the Hindus to the pantheon of created gods of Mormonism to the false god of Jehovah's Witnesses. They all create gods to suit their fancy. They will create gods that make sense to them. They will create gods that they can relate to. But it's not limited to just that. What about the God of comfort? 
we can fall prey to him pretty fast. What about the God of fame or the God of money or the God of philosophy or scientism? By the way, we're seeing in our culture now, not real science anymore, but scientism, that we're basically saying, hey, here's some data, here's my conclusion, and my conclusion is the science. That is, by the way, not science. That's philosophy applied to science, by the way. Or the insidious God of Marxism or politicism. How about the God of sexual identity? Many of us exchange the truth about God for the false God of that lately. Knowing God and what He requires doesn't change our hearts except actually to make them harder. And that's what we see here. Although they knew God, although they knew God. Paul's not ambiguous here. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The knowledge of God makes dark hearts even darker. It makes hateful hearts even more hateful. It makes hardened hearts even harder. That explains a lot when it comes to Pharaoh. And the thing that we need to see is this isn't local, it's universal. All of mankind, before coming to Christ, hates God and refuses to acknowledge Him. And that includes that includes our neighbors. That includes our friends, those that we love, those we laugh with. It includes even some of our own family members. They may say that they don't hate God, but if they're not born again, they do. They don't want Him, and their hearts are hard and torn Him. This is who mankind is, fully aware of who God is and His wrath is against sin. They just simply deny this truth. And so knowing God this way cannot save, and it will not save. That is why we must have something more than general revelation. That's the term that that theologians use. And I mention it because I think you'll hear it more and more as you read books or listen to other sermons. General revelation is is this kind of knowledge. It's the general understanding of who God is, is revealed in creation. This general revelation is what we see in the world. Right? It's a truth that God has revealed him, how He's revealed Himself through the created order. And this general revelation has given, was given to all of mankind, and all of mankind can see that God exists, but general revelation can only make us accountable to God. It cannot save us. And so what we need then is something more than general revelation. We need more than just creation. We need something special. We need a special revelation, another theological term that you hopefully will become familiar with. And that's what we get in the Scriptures. That's the unique special revelation we get in the Scriptures, a special revelation where God Himself is speaking to us through His Word. And that's what we get in the life and the work of Jesus because Christ, in Christ, He reveals Himself to the fullest sense. As Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, He, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the power of His Word. Christ is God's special revelation, the full revealing to mankind who God is. 
And that's what mankind needs, a special divine revelation. The revelation about who we are, a revelation about our need for a Savior, a revelation about God and what He's done for us and how He has provided us that Savior. A revelation also how we receive Him as Savior. We need a special revelation from God, and He has given that to us in the gospel, in the good news. And this special revelation, this gospel, Paul says, this gospel, this special revelation is the power of God to do what? To save. General revelation cannot save, but special, the special revelation of the gospel is the power of God to save those who believe. And by the way, now we're coming back to the point that Paul is making. Mankind knows God exists. He knows that sin will be judged. He knows that they are at odds with God. And that knowledge is plain to everyone because creation reveals it. But knowing that cannot save us. It can only make us accountable. And so what do we need? What the world needs is a special revelation from God to show us how to escape the coming wrath and how to reconcile us back to God and save us from our sins. And God has given us that. God has not only come into the world in Christ, revealing himself for us and doing for us all the things that we couldn't do for ourselves. He has also left us the special revelation of his word. And in his word, he gives us the special revelation of the glorious gospel of grace. The revelation that is the power of God to save. The gospel message that clearly says that this is how you have life. This is how you're made whole. This is how you're reconciled to God. The gospel is the revelation of God to save. And that is why, that is why we must never be ashamed of the gospel. Not the bad news, and certainly not the good news. And so what are our big takeaways from this? I mean, as we walk through these truths and and hopefully we take them and impress them into our hearts. What do we do with this? Well, number one is we just have to just admit to ourselves and admit to everyone else. There's no such thing as an atheist. We just, we just have to decide God's word has settled that issue. I don't care what you say. I don't care how passionate you are. And believe me, I want you to know when this, this message goes out on YouTube, I'll get comments you know, in YouTube saying, you're stupid. I'm an atheist. You can't tell me I'm not. Okay. Okay. God said that you're an atheist, not me. How about that? Number two, there's no one who is innocent. Right? Everyone knows that they're at odds with God, and they don't care, which means mankind is guilty and deserving of God's wrath. And if God saved no one, he would be completely just and right and holy. But number three, Salvation does not come from knowing God through general revelation. Salvation comes from hearing and receiving and believing the special revelation of the gospel. And this is the most important point I want to drive home to you. This is important because many people will spend a great deal of their life and their energy and time trying to argue with people about the existence of God. Right? Let's just say you know all the arguments. Let's just say that you're a great orator. Just, let's just say that you were brilliant, you know, in, in debate. And somehow, someway, you convince somebody through philosophy and science that God indeed does exist. Guess what? All you have done is established a truth they already knew. That's it. 
That's all you have accomplished. You have not helped them to come to know Christ. Right? Now, now, please hear me. This is not a slam on apologetics. Okay? I think apologetics has its place. I think people need to be able to answer questions. I think you should give the hope for, for, that's in you. I think that you should be able to answer the basic things. I think those are good. But I'm not somebody for evidential apologetics you know, up front. I am someone who assumes God. And the reason why I assume Him is because, because all of creation already testifies to His existence. I don't have to prove Him. He's already been proven. But rather than arguing the facts that they already know, we need to basically come back to what we're supposed to do. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. You see, the truth is no one will be saved unless they hear the gospel. No one's going to hear unless we preach. God must change their hearts and they must hear the gospel. And until that happens, we're just simply arguing to argue. And I, and I say that, I want you to know, like, I'm somebody who can get caught up in that, that fast. Somebody says, yeah, there's no evidence for God's existence. I'm all over that. I know the arguments. <laughs> but I realize it's just a trap for me to get worked up. And this is why I remind you and bring you back to over and over again, what is our job? Our job isn't to convince people of the truth. They know the truth. Our job is to do what? Sow the seed of the gospel. Love the people so that people can see the light of Christ shining through us and then pray that God will do the part that he can, only He can do, and that is to change their hearts and then us never giving up on them. Never stop loving them. Never stop proclaiming the gospel. Never stop praying for them, knowing that God in His own time can pierce their hearts and that gospel seed will fall and their lives will change dramatically right now, no matter how many times they want to say they're an atheist. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly my story. That's what we're to do. They know God exists. They know that they're in sin. And they know that they're at odds with God. We just need to give them the glorious gospel. Which brings me back to, this is why we need to know the gospel. And I preach it over and over again, and I say it over and over again, because what I find is many times as we hear it, many times struggle to articulate it. And the gospel is really always rooted in who God is. We start with God. God is holy, righteous, and just, the creator of all things, including us. And we are his crowning achievement. We were created special. I don't care what the atheists tell you, that we're just animals. We were created special to know God, to have a relationship with God. But, oh, our sin separates us from God. It has created a divide that we cannot overcome. Right? That sin cannot be overcome by our own efforts, by the way. We can't do anything to make God love us. We will never be able to, which means then we are completely lost and hopeless. If God had decided to leave us like that and let us run our course, God would have been completely just and happy and he would have been perfect still and creation could have went off into the abyss. But, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God made payment for our sins through Christ's vicarious atoning work on the cross, but He also secured for us the righteousness we need through His life. And E, everyone who believes will have life. Everyone who puts their faith in Christ will live. That's the, we talk about how exclusive the gospel is, but it is completely radically inclusive. That means everyone, I don't care where you were born, I don't care what background you come from, 
how rich you were, how poor you were, how many crimes you've committed, everyone who comes to faith in Christ will have life, L, life eternal. And that life begins the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the message that we have. And guess what? Your job isn't to make them believe it. Your job is to share it with them because you can't make them believe it. They already know the truth. They already know the truth. You can't change their hardened hearts. All you can do is share the gospel, pray that God would change their hearts and love them and just keep loving them and keep shining that light and then never giving up. And that's who we are to be as a church family, to live for that gospel all the days of our lives. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.